Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. Today's episode is a treat. We've invited David Litt, one of President Obama's speechwriters, onto the show. He is very funny. And I'd be lying if it wasn't a bittersweet interview, remembering when we had a president who actually had a sense of humor and also was able to complete a sentence. David's got a new book out, Democracy in One Book or Less. And I think you'll find our conversation inspiring. I know I sure did. When you watch a speech and it seems like the speaker doesn't know what they want to say, they usually don't. We'll have a, an economy based on wind. I never understood wind, and I know windmills very much. I've studied it better than anybody. I know it's very expensive. They're made in China. My friend, the Republican leader, claims changing the rules to make the Senate more efficient is an assault on minority rights. In fact, it's a response to abuse of the filibuster by Senate Republicans. And working together, we're changing the federal courts forever. What we're doing in the area of the courts, I think, is the most important thing we're doing. Of course, even after I've done all this, some folks still don't, don't think I spend enough time with Congress. Why don't you get a drink with Mitch McConnell, they ask. Really? Why don't you get a drink with Mitch McConnell? I'm David Litt, and I'm about to tell you how to crush Mitch McConnell's dreams. Sorry, not sorry. So we'll just dive in. And I think the place to start is you were a speechwriter for President Obama. How did you get that gig? I will say, and, and I feel like this is always disappointing to people who say, I want to be a speechwriter for someone like President Obama. I got that gig through, I hope, a little bit of talent, but so much luck. That's how I found all of my colleagues in the speechwriting office, and they were all amazing speechwriters, but every one of us had kind of stumbled into this one way or another. I did like stand-up comedy in high school and improv comedy in college. I thought I was going to go try to write comedy professionally. And instead, I saw Obama give a speech on June 3rd, 2008. It was after the Iowa caucuses. Mm. And at the end of that speech, I was like, you know what? No matter what that guy's doing, I want to be part of that. And so I was a field organizer in Ohio. Oh, wow graduated college. And field organizing was a great experience and one of my favorite jobs I've ever done. Mm. And I moved to DC with absolutely no plan. And I ended up at a speechwriting firm, which I didn't even know existed, but one that was founded by former Clinton speechwriters called West Wing Writers. And then when I was about to leave and join the reelection campaign, they put me in touch with John Favreau, who was the president's chief speechwriter at the time. And he said, you know, if you stay in DC, Valerie Jarrett, she's the president's senior advisor, and she's been looking for a speechwriter. If you applied for that job, you would be the only person applying. So you could work in the White House if you want. And I said, yeah, okay, I, I could apply for that job. <laughs> so I got like the easiest White House job application process ever, although I still had to get through the interview and all that. And that's how I ended up there. But I was extremely, extremely lucky. It's just one of those things where even now, you know, I look back and say, like, oh, that's so weird that that was my life. That's so cool. What was like the day to day like? I mean, what would, what did the job entail? Would you have an idea yourself and just kind of jot it down and keep it on file for future reference? Or did you get assignments? How did that work? 
the way we tended to try to work in the White House speechwriting office when I was there is that the chief speechwriter, who was Favreau in the first term and then Cody Keenan in the second, they would go to the scheduling meetings, they'd meet with the president, and then they would assign speeches to everybody. So you'd usually have about a week before your speech to get to know the issue, to write a draft, to go through the whole editing process. But then sometimes stuff comes up. I mean, one of the things about working at the White House that you learn very quickly is you can plan all you want and you should plan carefully. And then all those plans are going to completely get thrown out the window because something happens in the world. Well, I think that's just life, right? Yeah, you know, it is. It's it, it was a very good preparation for all of these other elements of life where, you know, I think it was Eisenhower who said no plan survives contact with the enemy. And actually the Eisenhower quote I love is planning is priceless, plans are useless. Mm. And I think that is the the heart of working in a place like the White House. Even back when I was there and it was full of people who were great and cared about the country and wanted to do an amazing job, you can't plan for everything. It's just impossible. I mean, you know, here we are in 2020. <laughs> And it feels like a lot, right? I mean, this presidency, I knew it was going to be bad. I knew Trump was going to make a horrible president, but I had no idea it would be this bad. And especially this year, starting with the pandemic and then how he's handled the protests. It just feels like it's been like a parade of shit, when I think about these moments, usually these are the moments that create presidential quotes, right? When a when a nation is faced with a crisis, that's when a president kind of rises to the occasion and speaks so eloquently and in a way that unifies the country. And I feel like when tragedies happened, when President Obama was in office, he really did make these beautiful and heartfelt speeches that helped, I don't know, bring solace and maybe some healing to America. And then we got this guy who just doesn't. What are your thoughts? Well, I have to say, Alyssa, and I don't mean to brag, but I did think things would get this bad. So in a weird way, I am horrified and upset and scared, but I'm not surprised. I think we saw this kind of, and it's not just Trump. I should, should make that clear. One of the reasons that I think a lot of us who worked for the Obama administration kind of are saying this is exactly what we were afraid of and what we almost expected was because of the way that the organized opposition to President Obama was so unhinged for so much of his two terms. Right. Not just about Trump. And the, the reason I bring that up in the context of his response or non-response is that I think for two straight terms, you had Republicans view Obama as this existential crisis, that if he succeeded, their party was doomed. So they had to do everything they could, including come up with plenty of alternative facts, including attacking our democracy, trying to figure out how to stop Obama. As some of you heard, the state of Hawaii released my official long-form birth certificate. Hopefully, that this puts all doubts to rest. But just in case there are any lingering questions, tonight, I'm prepared to go a step further. <laughs> tonight, for the first time, I am releasing my official birth video. The problem is then once you actually do win power, 
even if most people didn't vote for Trump, right? Once they took power, there was nothing there. They had no ideas and no real ways of solving problems. And now I think what we've seen, which is stunning and where I really am surprised, is to see the president just retreat from the most important issues. I mean, the, the one thing I truly never expected to see in America is the president of the United States, the most powerful person on earth, saying, oh, that's not my problem when stuff comes up. He turned off the lights in the White House. Someone pointed out, and it was almost exactly four years ago, when the White House was lit up in the rainbow flag after the Supreme Court decision on gay marriage. And the contrast of those two images, this idea of a White House that is lit up in a symbol of being a place that welcomes everybody and is part of a country that belongs to everybody, versus the alternative which is not great again for anyone. I I think most Americans right now, except for a very small handful, you know, the old Reagan question, are you better off now than you were four years ago? I would like to meet the person who feels better off now than they were four years ago outside of, you know, a handful of billionaires. But other than that. Let's go through the process of what it must be like to write a speech for this president, for Trump. I mean, I can't even imagine I mean, do you think that he goes through and edits? What do you what do you think that process is like for the speechwriters that are in the White House right now? I have to say, I think it's totally infuriating, not for the speechwriters who are there right now, who I don't particularly care that much about. But for me, because and for other people who have worked on speeches for somebody like a Barack Obama who really cares about what they're saying. Because for years we would get attacked because President Obama would edit speeches, he would help write them, he would contribute to them, depending on the size of the speech, the big speech, I mean, he was really involved for weeks or even months ahead of time. And then he would read the speech and he would use a teleprompter and Republicans would say, oh, well, that proves he doesn't actually care about what he's saying. He doesn't even know. He's just reading off a prompter. And I don't think that's generally true, except for in the case of Donald Trump. I think when he gives a big speech, a State of the Union style speech, I don't really think that he has a strong opinion about what he's reading. And I'm not really sure. I mean, those are you know 6,000, 7,000 word speeches. I'm not sure that Trump has read 7,000 words as president, let alone read right. his own speeches. But the danger is when the president advocates leadership like that, who comes in and fills the gap? Well, it's the Stephen Millers of the world who want to push this white nationalist agenda. Yep. It's the, the Kushners of the world who think they know everything and really don't. And so when, the, you know, when there's no one home, we're talking about the White House having gone dark, right? And almost literally, there's no one home at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. It's not that the country stops working. It's that other people come in and start to run the show. I just think about how there's got to be an element of seamlessness in how someone speaks in the context of a speech versus what they say in an interview or a Q&A or a press conference. There's got to be some cohesiveness. And when I look at Trump and he's reading at, let's say, one of these press conferences for COVID, there's such a distinct difference between what he is saying when he's down looking at those cards and he's really monotone and we've lost blah, 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 and blah, 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 and da, 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 to how he answers questions during the Q&A part, that it takes everything away from what he's trying to say in a speech. Because you go, well, someone wrote that for him. That's not coming from him at all. 
Whereas I feel like the good, you know, someone like President Obama, you there was such a flow that you you knew that those words were written for him, but came from his heart and he cared about them. I can't even imagine how homogenized those speeches must become once they're actually read, like that process, because I'm sure everyone that isn't Trump is adding their two cents. Like, I almost wish that he would write his own speeches and they would be a disaster. But then we'd go, oh, well, yeah, at least that's his own speech. Right. I mean, I think what is fascinating about Trump and fascinating, I feel like, is one of these many euphemisms that we're using in in the Trump era. But what is fascinating about Trump is that he does have this stream of consciousness monologue that he loves to deliver when he's out in front of the rallies, you know, obviously he has not been able to do his rallies because of the pandemic, and clearly that's been getting to him. But you do get a sense of who this person is, and you get a sense that you can't hide it behind sort of the respectable rhetoric. Yeah. One of the things I learned as a speechwriter, and this is not just for President Obama, this is generally true, is, you know, if I was writing a speech for you, for example, I could hopefully help you articulate exactly what you want to say and sharpen a point or come up with a line kind of to put the best version of yourself forward. What I could not do is make you sound like someone you're not. It's just not possible. Right. And that I think is particularly true for the president because they're so scrutinized. They're on camera so often. And so with Trump, we know who he is. Trump is the guy at the Trump rally. It's not a secret. The idea that every so often, you know, basically at this point now, just once a year for the State of the Union, he puts on a kind of president suit and says, okay, well, I'm going to pretend to give a, a normal speech. And even those, by the way, once you unpack them, are totally unhinged. It, it doesn't, just doesn't pass the smell test. So you were one of the writers who worked with the president when he needed to be funny. First of all, obvious question, is Barack Obama funny? He is funny. One of the things I really admired about President Obama was that he's clearly, he just has a sense of humor, which is not always true with politicians, including a lot of politicians I like and respect a great deal. Um, You do not have to have a good sense of humor to be a successful politician. But I do think there was something about the fact that he was able to be the president and also recognize that there was kind of something absurd about being the president that I did admire. It was a trait of his, that ability to be doing his job and then also to be outside of himself watching himself, that I think is very, very rare. Mm. Uh, Some people do one, some people do the other, but very few people can do both at once. It was really fun to get to work with the president. For the most part, he would kind of weigh in on jokes, but even sometimes he would ad-lib in his correspondence centers and whatnot. And I think one of the most remarkable things is when he would ad-lib, if you looked at the transcript or or you go back and watch that tape, you wouldn't know what was an ad lib and what was not. I mean, right. a sense of timing. It was very unfair to the comedian who would have to follow him every year. Because, you know, I, I talked to their <laughs> writers and say, wait a second. So your guy has a sense of timing like a comedy guy, but then also he's the president. How are we supposed to follow him? <laughs> it's such a good point.
What does it say about a president when he can't take a joke or when he takes himself so seriously that he gets upset at like SNL for parodying him? It's sort of at the heart of the authoritarian Mm. of Trump, I think. Donald Trump. All kidding aside, obviously we all know about your credentials and breadth of experience. Um, For example, uh, no, seriously, just recently in an episode of Celebrity Apprentice at the steakhouse, the men's cooking team uh, did not impress the judges from Omaha Steaks. And there was a lot of blame to go around, but you, Mr. Trump, recognized that the real problem was a lack of leadership. And so ultimately, you didn't blame Little John or Meatloaf. You fired Gary Busey. And these are the kind of decisions that would keep me up at night. President Donald Trump tweeted today that he will not be attending the White House Correspondents' Dinner this April. This kind of combination of, on one hand, you want power, and on the other hand, you're extraordinarily insecure. And so the idea of someone laughing at you, it's interesting because one of Trump's favorite things when he's taught, when he's attacking someone else or when he's describing someone as weak, he says, oh, well, they're laughing at him. You know, that was right. that's clearly something that he fears. And I do think that one of the things about American political culture that I have always admired, and this isn't just true of Democrats, is the president of the United States has been willing to make fun of himself hopefully one day herself as well, that there is a sense of, I might be the most powerful person on earth. I might be the leader of the free world, but I'm also just a person. And, you know, I've, I've spoken in other countries, in other democracies, and people find that very surprising. But they also find it really refreshing and almost quintessentially American in that way. I mean, we don't, mm. there's no tradition of presidents telling jokes at their own expense in Italy or Britain, at least not to my knowledge. But, you see that here. And I think it says something valuable about who we are as a people and what it means to be committed to democracy. Yeah, I guess the Trump not being able to laugh at himself is why he is not wearing a mask during the pandemic when he's out in public. I think that all those things kind of intersect with each other when you think that you should have this like commanding presence and you're afraid that people are going to laugh at you or think less of, of you. It'll make you do some weird things. Yeah. I, in a weird way, it's just one of a long series of kind of odd fashion choices from Donald Trump. That's a different podcast, maybe. But it's interesting that he has a lot of money and a lot of power and still wears that tie and no mask. Right. <laughs> so true. Well, I want to talk about your new book, Democracy in One Book or Less, which I love that title. You start the book by trying to crash a frat party at Mitch McConnell's old fraternity. That's Mitch McConnell, the longest serving Republican leader in Senate history, a witness to MLK's I Have a Dream speech and a guy who always looks like he has a secret. And that secret is that he just doesn't care. Addison Mitchell McConnell Jr. was born in 1942 in Sheffield, Alabama. At two years old, McConnell was struck with polio. His mother drove him to a treatment facility opened under Democrat Franklin D. Roosevelt in Warm Springs, Georgia, where he was nursed back to health. In 1956, McConnell's family moved to Louisville, where he began his political career as his high school student council president. Later, he was a member of the Phi Kappa Tau fraternity at the University of Louisville College of Arts and Sciences, where he graduated with honors in 1964. Which is weird because he doesn't look like a frat guy so much as the frat guy's accountant who might be skimming a little off the top because he's mad they have girlfriends. It's so good. What happened and what brought you there? 
when I was working in the Obama White House, the sense that I started to get was I, there were really two things that I began to realize. One is our democracy is not working the way it's supposed to. I mean, we won the election. President Obama won the first time around by a huge margin. And change was so hard. I mean, we got big things done, but they were so much harder than they should yeah. have in the schoolhouse rock model of democracy. The idea of democracy that I always grew up with, which was, you know, the people don't always get what we want, but when we overwhelmingly have a preference for something, our leaders should listen to us. So that was the first thing I started to realize. Our democracy is not functioning the way it should. And number two, the person who seems to understand that better than anybody is Mitch McConnell. If I'm still the majority leader of the Senate after next year, none of those things are going to pass the Senate. They won't even be voted on. So think of me as the Grim Reaper. The more I got to know about Mitch McConnell, the more I realized he doesn't just understand how our system works. He has reshaped our system. Not single-handedly, but he knows more about the engine of democracy than just about any politician. And he's made it the cause of his life to rework the way that our system works so that it only benefits a few people. And most of us get left out. And kind of in the way that if you were really obsessed with the Beatles, you might go to Abbey Road and like try to take that iconic picture. For me, I felt like as I started to write this book about what has happened to our democracy and how we fix it, I felt like I need to go to where it all started for Mitch McConnell. And it's amazing. That, that's a frat house at the University of Louisville. So, you know, I decided I was a man in his early 30s and I'm going to go crash a frat party, which turns out to be way less appealing than you might think. It might be exactly as unappealing as you might think, but it didn't work. You mentioned Schoolhouse Rock and you approach this book almost as an homage, really, to Schoolhouse Rock. What was so special about those songs and cartoons to you? Some of it was where I was. I talk about this in the book that, you know, for me, Schoolhouse Rock, my grandparents had the VHS of Schoolhouse Rock, and they would put it in when I went to visit them at their condo in Florida. There's just a nostalgia to it. Part of it also is what I loved about Schoolhouse Rock, and especially I'm Just a Bill, you know, the, the, the song that we all know, or the song I think most of us know, is it's celebrating not just one bill's journey to become a law, but it's celebrating the idea of a process by which what we want becomes what we get from our government. Mm. And that idea... I didn't really know how to articulate that when I was a kid, but that idea that the hero of the journey is the journey itself and that we can go on that journey as Americans. And that's the kind of opportunity almost no one in human history has been given to say, if I want to change my country, I have some way to do it. And that's really what that song was about to me. Plus it's a catchy song. And so to me, that was kind of my initial understanding of how government worked. And then the more time I spent in government, and especially after Trump was elected, I started to say, hey, wait a second, this isn't how our government works at all, and decide, I, I want to understand how it really does work. Well, speaking of that, I want to talk about the Senate, and especially filibusters. These hundred people are the U.S. Senate. They pass laws. They vote, and when a majority says yes, it passes. But these days, the Senate doesn't do that very often. The Senate holding two votes, both failed. It's completely dysfunctional. Four versions of gun control proposals and all four failed. See, the Senate has this rule. It says before they vote, 60 people have to agree to have the vote. That means just 41 people, a minority, can entirely block a bill. This is called a filibuster. You call the middle of the 20th century the golden age of delayed urination. 
but also dispel some of the myths about filibusters. So fill us in on that. The filibuster is fascinating because, and and I I should stay here, I did not know very much about it when I started. I thought I knew a lot about how the filibuster worked. It turns out I was totally wrong. The filibuster wasn't in the Constitution. It wasn't originally in the Senate. It was actually created by mistake by Aaron Burr, the same guy who shot Alexander Hamilton. He basically copy-edited the Senate's rule book, and this was right after he shot Hamilton, by the way, and decided this one section was kind of wordy and wasn't necessary, and he had it taken out. And it turned out that was the one section that allowed you to stop a debate and actually take a vote on a measure. And so more or less by accident, we ended up with this Senate where people could filibuster legislation they didn't like. And what I didn't realize was that the filibuster has changed generation to generation. So this 60 vote threshold we have today is a product of the 1970s. But before that, the filibuster had a different higher threshold. There were different rules around it. There's all sorts of nuances and complexities. But the most important thing about the filibuster is every generation of Americans has had to look at the filibuster and say, this thing is not working. It is holding up the country. How do we change it? What do we do about it? Yeah. And so the filibuster, I always thought this was a new problem. I thought this was like a Mitch McConnell problem. He set this 60 vote, vote threshold where you can't get laws passed. And it is the new incarnation of the Mitch McConnell problem. But the broader problem has been going on ever since the filibuster started. I mean, it's so fascinating to me how the progress happens and where it sort of splinters off into some something totally unintended. I feel like we can't talk about the Senate with an Obama staffer without talking about Merrick Garland. Is Mitch McConnell just the devil? Is he some sort of like evil genius? Is he just getting lucky? Or was the Senate designed for the kind of manipulation that he's been able to pull off and pulled off to stop President Obama from filling a seat on the Supreme Court? Today, President Obama said his Supreme Court nominee would head to Capitol Hill for meetings tomorrow. But hours later, Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell phoned nominee Merrick Garland to say, don't bother coming. I won't meet with you and the Senate won't act on your nomination. Let's find out more about the Republican strategy in the Senate. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell joins us now from Capitol Hill. Senator, thanks for being here. Glad to be with you. Will Justice Garland, Judge Garland, get a hearing? No, I don't think so. Well, I don't think that Mitch McConnell is the devil, and I don't think he's necessarily a genius, but I think he understands a few things really, really well. One is that in the way that our government is currently constructed, the math beats the words almost all the time. And what I mean by that is, if you understand just how many rules are needed, how many votes you need to get, and you can create some sort of hedge against getting to that number of votes, you can block a bill no matter how eloquent your opponents are and how high their ideals are. And that's just unfortunately the the truth of the moment. The other thing I think Mitch McConnell understood was that there was an appetite, not just his own appetite, but in general among parts of the Republican Party to allow this sort of thing to happen. So I talked to Sarah Binder, who's a professor at George Washington University and an expert on the Senate. And one of the things she said when she looked at the chapter in my book, she said, you know, I like the way that you point out all the things that Mitch McConnell has done, but don't he couldn't do it alone. The other senators of his party have to be okay with him doing all these things or he couldn't get away with it. And when it comes to Merrick Garland, I think what happens is if you look at our courts, The Supreme Court has always been considered 
the ultimate prize for the conservative movement. I mean, this has been yeah. a project that has been going on for longer than I've been alive to, to flip the Supreme Court and entrench a conservative majority on the court. This has been going on since at least the 70s. And I think you see Republican senators look at the court as a tool for wielding power. And when that seat opened up, I don't think there were very many Republican senators who were at all concerned about the idea of keeping it open because they said, this is a project that has gone on for 40 years. This is our chance. We don't want to blow it. And I think that that is, unfortunately, the way they went into it. And now it's our job to prove them wrong, to demonstrate that when you try to pack the court, it ultimately will fail. Something that really resonated with me was what you said, and I'm going to quote you here, the reason Mitch McConnell triumphed at least in the short term, was that he redesigned our political process while we weren't paying attention. (sighs) Do you think we're paying attention now? I think we're paying so much more attention than we were just a few years ago. I mean, I remember sitting down with, you know, editors from magazines or other people kind of in the, the political and literary world and saying, I think for my next book, I want to write a page-turning book about the political process. And the number of people who said, no one's going to care about that stuff. And admittedly, the book is out, you know, just came out, so we'll see if they were right. But recently, my bigger concern has been, am I too late for this? And I think that's a great concern to have. You know, all of these issues where I felt like most Americans wouldn't care about them at all, gerrymandering, voter suppression, voter purges, mm. courts. What I found was fascinating, and I think on each of these, I've learned things that I'm really excited to share, but I don't feel like I'm the only one thinking about this stuff. And that's great. I think people care about not just the players on the field, but the rules of the game. And I do think that Mitch McConnell and and Team Mitch, as I think about it, they changed a lot of those rules when we were just focused on the players on the field. And we realized that that was a mistake to let them do that. And now we're focused on changing them back. And I should say, not so that Democrats always win, but so that we have fairness and real democracy. But do you think that if we had been paying attention, would we have been able to stop him? That's a great question. I don't know that the answer is an unequivocal yes, but I think the answer is it would have been much harder to you. Let me give you just one example. So in 2013, the Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act, as you know, and the consequences have been really dramatic. I mean, in the last, between 2008 and 2016, America lost more than 10% of its polling places. And a lot of those polling places were closed in states that had been prohibited from closing polling places in minority areas because of the Voting Rights Act, the court got the act, and suddenly all these polling places closed. A few people saw this coming, but as a progressive movement, we didn't say this should be our top priority. We need to defend voting rights as hard as we defend anything. Mm-hmm. And I now that has changed. And I do think one of the things you, you learn when you learn about the court is the court does respond to political pressure. I'm not sure they would have issued a different ruling, but I think that those kinds of things were so much easier to affect because as a progressive movement, we were really focused on the next presidential election. We were focused on a lot of worthy causes, but we weren't paying attention to what was happening below the surface at the foundation. And unfortunately, you know, being a progressive means you got to pay attention to all of it. You say in the book that McConnell has unearned power. Explain what you mean by that. Well, even the very beginning of Mitch McConnell's Senate career, this was totally fascinating. I had no idea about this. So in Kentucky, as is true in a number of states around the country, there is a law that if you have been convicted of a felony, you can never vote again in that state. No matter, you know, even if you've done your time, you're off parole, 
recently we talked a lot about that in terms of Florida, where 1.5 million people couldn't vote in the last election. But Kentucky has one of these laws, too. At the time Mitch McConnell ran his first race, he was actually not helped a ton by this law. I mean, only 3%, I believe, of African-Americans in Kentucky couldn't vote. But he ran such a close race that it actually turns out that when sociologists went back, looked at this race, Mitch McConnell never would have become a senator if it wasn't for this restrictive voting law. Hmm. That's not a surprise in that once he got to the Senate, Mitch McConnell fought tooth and nail to keep people from voting. He, he was against the motor voter law, the thing where you can register to vote at the DMV, which we all take for granted today, clearly has not caused any sort of fraud or anything like that, just help people vote. He took this on with a, an intensity that was really shocking. So I think there's that understanding of if the system were really fair, we'd be in trouble. And then, by the way, you saw Trump, you know, he said the quiet part out loud. He tweeted this about vote by mail, where he said, yeah. if you vote by mail, the Republican Party's over. Now, I don't actually think he's right. I think the evidence is pretty mixed on whether vote by mail helps either party. But the fact that Trump says if everyone could vote, Republicans would be doomed, um, says something uh, about him and his party that maybe most Republicans would rather not say. I think what's so dangerous about this is the effect it'll have not just on the Supreme Court, but all of federal courts. I mean, every aspect of civil rights in America seems under threat because, you know, McConnell, with orders from his masters at the Federalist Society and the NRA, is filling the courts with unqualified and even more terrifying extremist judges. What do you think the impact of this will be on our nation? So I would just make a small adjustment to something that you said. You said the, his masters of the Federalist Society. And I actually would say his partners, because if you look at Mitch McConnell's goal, and I feel like, you know, I'm picking on poor Mitch McConnell here. I don't feel that bad about it. But if you look at his goal, a lot of his top priorities, cutting taxes for rich people, gun control, doing nothing on climate change and helping big oil instead, these are not popular. So he has to figure out a way to get unpopular policies without using the elected branches of government. And that means judges are the best possible tool to do that. You can have them issue rulings that basically make policy. And then at the same time, you can say, well, I didn't have anything to do with that. They were just practicing their originalist vision of the Constitution. So there's a symbiotic relationship between the Federalist Society and politicians like McConnell. And I do think at this point, the judiciary is getting to a level where any legislation that passes has to get run by the conservative movement and they get a veto in the form of conservative judges who are political rather than conservative in a, a you know, in jurisprudential sense, and, but are more partisan than ever before. And any bill from I'm just a bill or, or bell, the, the bill that I taught, the hypothetical bill that I talked about in the book has to be sort of overseen by a conservative ju judiciary. And if they don't approve, then that's it. She's dead. And so I think for us, the, the good news here, because I do want to be a little bit positive about this, is there's a lot more tools for the elected branches of government to pressure the judiciary and to deal with a court system that has been packed than I think we generally know about or than we generally use. And so it's not like we don't have the tools in the toolbox. We, we do. We just have to be willing to use them if needed in order to curb the influence of a partisan judiciary, if that's where we're ending up. Okay, then explain what those tools are. So one of those is really simple. This is what President Lincoln did in the, during the Civil War. The Civil War was challenged as unconstitutional. He knew that 
the conservative at the time, the conservative majority on the court was considering overturning the entire war effort. So he created a 10th seat on the Supreme Court and he filled it with a judge who he thought would issue a kind of ruling that he thought was correct. By the way, not one who would issue rulings that would always agree with Lincoln, but on this central constitutional question at the time, no question. He expanded the court and filled it with someone he thought would be reliable. That is something that I think we can do if we need to. I think at this point, we probably should expand the court by at least one or two seats, because I think the seat that was held open when Justice Scalia passed away. Mm-hmm. And also, I think that we should set a new norm in our country that if a president commits a crime to win an election, and we're talking about individual number one here, if a president commits a crime to win an election, they should not be able to appoint judges who serve for life and then not at least have those judges balanced out. I think it would disincentivize being so ruthless about winning these elections if we said, hey, even if you pack the court in the short term, we will unpack it. So that's something Congress can do. But there's actually more than that. So, for example, the Gabe Roth, who's a nonpartisan guy, but he runs a nonprofit called Fix the Courts. The Constitution says that every judge has to serve for life if they want to. It doesn't say which court they have to serve on. So you could pass a law that I think would be constitutional, where judges would serve for 18 years, and then at the end of their 18 years on the Supreme Court, they would rotate down to a lower court, and a new judge would be put on every two years. Mm. That would effectively create term limits for Supreme Court judges, which would make court packing less effective, which means future Mitch McConnell would not have this incentive to do it. And then finally, there's some law professors who believe, and I think there's a, they have a good case for it, that you could say the court needs to have a supermajority, six votes or seven votes, in order to overturn an act of Congress. Because the point of the courts and judicial review was initially not to overturn acts of Congress. It was almost entirely used to overturn state law. And that's one thing the conservative movement talks a lot about originalism. But the original intent of the Constitution and judicial review is being violated by using judicial review as a tool to overturn Congress. Well, let's do that. (laughs) Okay. Right? I do think a lot of this stuff is much more doable than we would assume, especially you look at the news and there's so much bad news. But I think we will get a window. And the question of how we use this window, that's one of the reasons I, I wrote the book. We use the window wisely. Whenever we next get it, we can make a lot of change in a very short amount of time. Well, we've got the election coming up, and you closed your book out talking about the unity place. What is that? Describe that to us, and how do we get there? Well, there's the real unity place, which is where Mitch McConnell's old frat house is located. But what I'm describing is a more figurative unity place. And for me, what that means is Democrats and Republicans, not politicians, but ordinary Americans, voters, and independents, I should add, have come to this shared realization that our government is not representing us the way that it should. And I'm a Democrat. I'm a very proud Democrat. But if you look at what Americans want, it is not a partisan thing to say, we want a country where everyone can vote. We want a country where every eligible voter casts a ballot that really matters. We want a country where courts are not partisan. We want a country where legislation can actually get through 
our lawmaking process. These are not partisan issues. These are shared values that we have and shared interests that we have. So I do think that we are reaching a consensus as a country, and hopefully we will be able to reflect it in our politics, that our democracy has failed to represent us for too long, and that it's time to make some changes so that our democracy starts to represent the people again. What, what do you think is going to happen November? Ooh, I'll tell you what I think I want to happen, but it's so hard to confuse that with what I think will happen at this point. I think we are living through a series of crises that no one wanted. But I do think that ultimately, if you look at most Americans, not all and not enough, but most, there is an understanding that when Trump said, I alone can fix it, he has clearly failed. And I think that that will be reflected not just in the election for president, but in the elections for Senate and the House, but the Senate in particular. But the, his enablers allowed this to happen as well. All of that said, I think ultimately the real question as somebody who's, who's been involved in a number of campaigns is not what I think will happen. It's do our actions dictate what will happen? Do we still have a choice over what our future looks like? And there I, I feel very confident saying we absolutely have a choice. If we put all of this pain and anger and energy into 2020, then I have zero doubt that we will get the kind of outcome that we want. And then I think the question is, how do we keep that momentum going so that we don't just change our leaders, but we change the underlying system in the United States so that we have a system that is going to be bigger than any one of us. You know, right now we have bad systems getting in the way of good people when we put good people in office. We want to do it the opposite so that a good system is a check on bad people when the wrong people get elected. Are you concerned about what the pandemic means for the election as far as getting out and voting? I'm concerned about everything, and that's one of the concerns. I think that the stakes are so high that I don't believe most Americans will stay home. And I think that ultimately most states will recognize that people want vote by mail as an option. And I will say, just to put in a plug, I think vote by mail is great and important, but I really hope that states don't say, well, we're going to do vote by mail and in exchange, we'll close all the polling places. I think it's important to do both. And I think that people, we're seeing this these days with protests over police brutality, that people are willing to take risks to stand up for what they believe in. And I think voting is one of those things. I hope it won't come to that and no one should have to choose. But I think that if the president forces us to make that choice, we're going to choose to stand up for our country. All of that said, I think the one good thing that could come out of this is a broader sense of voting should be convenient for everybody. I mean, for a long time, we've pretended that voting is convenient for everyone who wants to vote. And suddenly, people like me, you know, basically white people who are not low income, are discovering what it's like to have to deal with voting when it's really hard and saying, oh, actually, it turns out not voting doesn't necessarily mean you're lazy. It means that voting was too hard. And so hopefully, even after this pandemic, we come together as a country and say, it's not enough to just say that everyone has the right to vote. Everyone should be able to vote in practice, not just in theory. And I think my final question for you is, and especially I think it's relevant for someone that worked with Obama, what gives you hope? Well, I'll tell you what gives me hope right now, which is I was just watching, watching and rewatching like a good, you know, I was born on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. So like any good Upper West Sider, I was watching the Sondheim 90th birthday tribute over and over again. I don't know if you saw it. I have not. Highly worth watching. There was one song, which was like a sort of, uh, you know, someone said kind of, if Stephen Sondheim had written a patriotic song, this is what he would have written. And he described America as 
an idea about tomorrow. And uh, I think the line was something along the lines of, we can change ourselves tomorrow. And to me, I mean, the thing that got me involved in politics in the first place was Barack Obama looking at a crowd of young people in Iowa. And he said, faced with impossible odds, people who love this country can change. They said this day would never come. They said our sights were set too high. They said this country was too divided, too disillusioned to ever come together around a common purpose. But on this January night, at this defining moment in history, you have done what the cynics said we couldn't do. To him, I think that was always the promise of America. It was certainly not that we were perfect or even necessarily at certain times that we were really good, but always that we could get better and that we could change ourselves. And I think that promise is still alive. I think no question there's so much that is wrong right now, but that ability to say we can shape our future, I mean, that is so rare. There's so many protesters around the world for people living in oppressive regimes around the world who would feel so extraordinarily lucky just to have a tiny slice of that power that we have, even in a democracy that's broken. And so if we use that power, we can set things right. We can still do that. And that gives me a lot of hope. Well, David, thank you so much for being a part of the podcast. The book, again, is called, tell everybody what it's called. Democracy in One Book or Less. Why it doesn't and why fixing it is easier than you think. And it's available right now. Thank you so much. I mean, everybody thinks that the White House is either like the TV show The West Wing, where everyone's hanging out with the president, or it's like the TV show Scandal, where everyone's having sex with the president. <laughs> but if you're looking for, for a Hollywood analogy, the White House is like the Death Star. Um, what I mean by that is just that there's thousands of people, they run around the hallways, they're all just trying to make sure their little bit of their job works well, and just because Darth Vader is the public face of the organization, it doesn't mean that every stormtrooper gets personal one-on-one time. So I try to explain this whole Death Star thing, and it doesn't work. I still get that disappointed look. And frankly, nobody's more disappointed than I am. I mean, nobody wants me to meet the president more than me. And there's two reasons for this. The first is kind of corny, but it's true. I moved to Washington because I thought, I don't know what it is, but there must be something I can do for my country. I want to be the kind of person where the president of the United States is just a little bit better at his job because I'm in the room. And the second reason is I would really like Barack Obama and I to become best friends. (laughs) Democracy is possible. I mean, it's hard to remember when we have a Senate majority and a president hell-bent on making sure it doesn't. And before my trolls start yelling, we're a republic, not a democracy, I'd remind them that a representative democracy is still a democracy. So sit down, kiddos. The grown-ups are talking. But we do need to fight for it. We need to earn our democracy. It's fundamental to our citizenship. We can't let arrested frat boys like Mitch McConnell and the bonehead Matt Gaetz soil our most important national institutions. And we can't have the Federalist Society run the judiciary. If we do, seriously, we have lost everything. 
That makes us American. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our associate producer is Ben Jackson. Editing and engineering by Natasha Jacobs. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. That's my boy. Please subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry.